Let us pray. Open our hearts and minds, O God, so that we may hear your word to us today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Years ago now, Lynn and I were at a wedding, a wedding of friends of ours. It was a small wedding, the second marriage for both the bride and the groom, and the wedding took place in the living room of the house of the bride. A minister had been hired, I think from the yellow pages, and she did a brief ceremony in front of the fireplace. And after the ceremony, we all got a place of food and found ourselves a place to sit somewhere throughout the house. My father-in-law, Jim, whose uniform is here with us today, was with us from Saskatchewan. He had been invited too. And the groom was German, and his father was over from Hamburg, Germany, for the wedding of his son. And the three of us, my father-in-law, Jim, and the groom's father, and myself, took our food and ended up together in a small den. Now, it didn't take long before we started to talk about the war. First, my father-in-law, Jim, told his story. I grew up on the farm in Saskatchewan. The country was in a depression, and times were really bad. There was no work for me. So I started out west in search for work. I made my way up to the north of BC, where I got a job in the gold mines. My job was to drill holes in the rock, fill it with dynamite, and blast holes in search of gold. It was a rough life. So when the war broke out and the Air Force was looking for recruits, I saw an opportunity to get out of there. I went to the recruitment office and asked if I could be put in training for a pilot, something I always wanted to do. However, they said that they didn't qualify because I didn't have enough education. So I begged them to give me a chance, give me three months, I will show you what I can do. And if not, then you can put me anywhere else. Well, I passed the course, and I became a pilot. I flew several types of planes and ended up as a Lancaster pilot. With my crew, we were sent to England, from where I flew 32 missions over Germany. We dropped bombs over Hamburg, the city we almost completely destroyed. The survival rate of Lancaster pilots and crew was 5%. I was one of the very lucky ones who made it back alive. Then Helmut, the father of the groom, told his story. I lived in Hamburg. When the war started, I was in high school. And one day a group of student uh, soldiers came in the classroom. They talked for a while with the teacher. And the teacher told all the boys to get up and follow the soldiers. I had no idea where we were going or what for. But soon it became clear that we had been recruited for the army. We weren't asked if we wanted to, and we didn't agree with anything, but we were all given uniforms, and we ended up in the Hitler Jugend, the youth part of the German army. I served in the German army. It was very tough. My city had been destroyed, and I'm also very fortunate 
to have survived the battles and the bombings. And it was my turn to tell my story. I was born in Holland shortly after the war started. Our country was occupied. The enemy had taken everything. Our possessions, metal, radios, cattle, harvest, everything was confiscated. And in the cities, people were starving by the millions. The Germans decreed that all men between the age of 18 and 40 had to report to the duty and were transported to Germany to work in the labor camps. The only way to avoid this was to hide. And then you became what in Dutch is called an onderduiker, a person hiding all, any, anywhere where the Germans could not find you. My dad, my family, and my uncles all went to the farm of my grandfather where it would be safer. And when the Germans came to the house to look for men, we would hide in the hay or under the floor in the living room. The farmhouse had a crawl space which was used for storing potatoes in the winter. And you could only get there through an opening under the table in the living room which was covered up by a carpet. And as long as they couldn't hear you, it was fairly safe. Usually, you could spot the Germans easily by their uniform. But one day, a car with three people in it stopped at the end of the driveway. They were not wearing uniforms. A Dutch person came to the door and asked to talk to my grandfather. We assumed that he was one of the locals. So my friend, grandfather came out of the house, and the two other men, who were Germans, arrested him and put him in the car. Why? Well, he had collaborated with the underground. He had allowed them to put their radio equipment in his farm so they could keep contact with the Allies in England and be informed when Allied soldiers on parachutes would be dropped so that local farmers could get them and hide them. So how did the Germans find out? We don't know for sure. But in Holland, we had two enemies, the Germans, who were easy to spot, and the traitors who were impossible to spot. They were Dutch people working for the Germans. It had been too tempting for them. When everyone was starving, they could make some money to buy food by reporting to the Germans what they had seen and heard. It may have been one of them that came to the farm. And there's another sad part of this story. My grandfather had a little dog that followed him around all the time. The two were inseparable. So when the car which my grandfather drove away from the driveway, the dog stayed at the end of the driveway, waiting for his master to return. No one could persuade him to come in the house. He wouldn't eat. He stayed there on his post for three weeks when he died. My grandfather was sent to jail and towards the end of the war, together with many others, he was sent to a concentration camp in Hamburg in Germany. There he died in January of 1945, a few months before liberation. In the town where he lived, the people built a monument for him, where still today, on every liberation day, a service is held in his, in his honor. So when all three of us had told our stories, we looked at each other and we said, why? Why did we do that? Why did we hate each other so much that we were prepared to kill each other? 
We shook our heads and we said, we don't hate each other. We are fellow human beings who wanted to lead a peaceful life. We were told to hate each other. When we left the den, we left not as enemies, but as friends. And I left with tears in my eyes. Years later, I met Harry Barrett, who you know used to be the mayor here in the GO train. He'd been a mayor of Oakville and often had to go to the Queen's Park for government business. He knew me well and he was always kidding me about being Dutch. And one day he said, I know some Dutch too, you know. And he gave me a sentence which meant, there is nothing left in the store. I said, where did you learn that? He said, in Holland. When were you there? In 1945. I was in the Canadian Army. He had come through France and Belgium and worked their way up north and liberated Holland. Then I asked him, which city did you liberate? He said, oh, you probably don't know. It's somewhere in the north. It's a city called Groningen. And then my mouth dropped open. I said, Harry, I was born in Groningen. I lived there. You liberated me. And from then on, every year on Liberation Day, I went to see Harry and thanked him for liberating me. He told me to stop doing that. It was just, <laughs> it was just a job that he had to do. But I said, Harry, if you and the fellow soldiers had not done what you did, I would not be been, been here. And sometime later, there was a gala dinner for Harry because the Waterfront Park was named after him. And all town dignitaries were there and held speeches. And then Mayor Burton said, is there anyone else who wants to say something about Harry? I stood up and I said, yes, I would like to thank Harry for saving my life. That got everybody's attention. So I told him the story of how Harry had been one of the Canadian soldiers that had liberated me. He had saved my life. He got a standing ovation. He was one of my heroes. Of course, afterwards he said, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> In the story we read from the book of Joshua, we hear part of a farewell speech from Joshua to the people of Israel just before he died. I think it's a remembrance speech. Joshua is now old, and he knows that for him the end is near. He had followed Moses as the leader of the people of Israel, and in his speech he reminds them of their history. And he goes all the way back to Abraham. He reminds them where they have been, and how God had brought them through the desert to the land that he had promised them. And they're now free. But their freedom had come at a price. There had been many battles. Joshua had led them in those battles, but now there was peace. The war was over, and Joshua tells his people now, now you have to decide what you will do with the peace that you now have. And he tells them to get rid of all the false gods and serve the God who led them all through their history. Don't worship idols. Worship God, your heavenly Father, who brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that he has promised you. So what are you going to do? Joshua said to them. Worship all the things people around you are worshiping? Or worship God, the creator, your heavenly Father? Today, says Joshua, I want you to make up your mind. Who will you serve? 
And then he says, I've already made that decision. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And when the people heard him say that, they said, we too will serve the Lord. And Joshua said, well, you will be witness to this. In 1945, we were liberated. The war was over. And for 78 years now, we have lived in peace in our part of the world. What, we have done, what have we done with that peace? Have we worshipped idols like wealth and fame, all of that which will disappear and prove to be meaningless? Or have we worshipped a God who gave us peace, gave us the peace that will last, peace that is in our hearts, peace that passes all understanding? Today, wars still rage on in many parts of the world, and we worry where it will lead to. And people still hate each other. They hate each other because of religion and ethnic background and color of their skin. Why? Hate leads to killing. Jesus said, in the law it says that you shall not murder, but I tell you, when you hate each other, you have already committed murder. And the three of us sat at that little room after the wedding, we looked at each other and said, why? At one time, we had been enemies with each other. We had been told to hate each other. And as a result, people had been killed. But when we looked at each other, we knew we did not hate each other. We were people living at different sides of a line, line draw between enemies and friends. So how can we stop hating each other? How can we stop wars from continuing to happen. Francis of Assisi, who the current Pope is called after, said this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. When there is hatred, let me sow love. When there is injury, pardon. When there is doubt, faith. When there is despair, hope. When there is darkness, light. When there is sadness, joy. And when the Pharisees asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your hearts and your soul and your mind. That's the first and the greatest commandment. But the second, like this, is love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus also said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Therefore, do not let your hearts be troubled and be at peace. Amen. To God be the glory.